Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. This is a Really Loud Revival podcast, and I am Sarah McKenzie. Hey, no, you're not. I'm Sarah McKenzie. No, I'm Sarah McKenzie. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Hey, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. Your response to the first episode was amazing. I was completely blown away. Thank you so much for all of your feedback and encouragement, and especially thanks to those of you who left ratings and reviews in iTunes. Those are super helpful as we try to get word out about the podcast. In episode one, Andrew Pudua from the Institute for Excellence in Writing told us why it's so important to read aloud to older kids. But building a family culture around books involves more than just consuming stories together. We need to read aloud, yes, but we also need to have meaningful conversations with our kids about the books we are reading together. That can be intimidating, or at least it's intimidating to me. So today we're going to hear from someone who can help us get a good handle on how to talk to our kids about books. Adam Andrews is the founder and director of the Center for Literary Education. He and his wife, Missy, homeschool their six kids and create products and resources at the Center for Lit that instill a love of literature. Adam is the author of the fabulous resource, Teaching the Classics. That book was my own introduction to learning how to talk about books with my kids. Adam and I will talk about how we can have effective and engaging conversations with our kids and about the books we are reading together. Everything we discuss will be linked up in the show notes at readaloudrevival.com. At the end of today's podcast, I'll tell you how you can enter to win your own copy of Teaching the Classics, which is an $89 value, so stick around. Before we get started, though, let's hear a short message from our sponsor. Once upon a time, do your children love those words? Then join us each week at Sparkle Stories. Our stories are simple, delightful, and filled with a sense of wonder. They'll inspire children to play, to marvel, to laugh, and to be kind. How to enjoy Sparkle Stories? Well, you can subscribe to any of our eight original story series and hear new stories each Friday. Or try one of our many audiobooks. And each week... We share a free story on the Sparkle iTunes podcast. You'll find us at www.sparklestories.com. Enjoy! Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and about what you are doing at the Center for Literary Education. Sure. My wife and I started Center for Lit about 
11 years ago after a impromptu conversation in our neighborhood among some of our friends who approached my wife, Missy, and said, you know, we didn't get a literary education when we were coming along, and we'd like you to help us uh, give one to our own students. And they were real clear about the fact that they didn't want Missy and I to teach their kids for them. They wanted us to give them some tools that would help them do the job themselves because they were, mm. you know, committed homeschoolers and wanted to be on the scene when all those wonderful moments of self-realization and discovery happen in the house, you know? Right. Yeah. So Missy put together a, a couple of ideas, combining her love for children's literature on the one hand and her um, interest in literary analysis on the other and sort of stuck those two things together and came up with a technique for using kids' books to pass on the basic techniques of literary analysis. And um, we found that using kids' books that way enabled the moms in our little group to catch on really quickly uh, uh, you know, onto what really makes up a literary analysis and then turn around and pass those lessons onto their kids kind of efficiently. So we've been doing that, uh, kind of spreading the word about our method for the last 10 or 11 years and having a great time reading good books along the way. Very good. So is that this, is that the method that you've um, distilled into teaching the classics? Exactly right. Is? Yep, that's it. Okay. Okay, let's tell our readers a little bit about teaching the classics right off the get-go. I have loved that book. Um, it's It was really my introduction into learning how to talk about books with my, my kids. And so maybe you can give us a little Reader's Digest version of what that is. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we're basically trying to work on applying three ideas. Uh, the first one is that all books, all stories, I should say, share common elements of context, structure, and style. And if you can understand how these elements fit together and how authors use those elements to make their point, you can go a long way towards being able to have a conversation with the author about what he's trying to say and enter into a, you know, a give and take and, and encounter the big ideas that he's, that he's trying to communicate. So that's the first idea. The second one is that since it's true that all books have the same elements, children's stories, as I just mentioned, are really the best place to start learning them, learning how to identify them, learning how to see the connections and how to really understand how a book is put together. And you're even talking about picture books here, right? Yes. I'm actually talking about the ones you read to your pre-readers, you know, your lap yeah. sitters before they go to bed. Absolutely. Our first, okay. the first teaching the class classic session was with, um, I'm trying to remember probably a bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban. You know, the one about the badgers learning how to share. Yes. Uh, those, those books <laughs> big were Francis fans here. <laughs> okay. Very good. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. The, um, the Francis books and really just about anything with a story to it. has got all the same elements in it that Shakespeare's Hamlet does or Charles Dickens, great expectations. And regardless of your age, if you can start learning literary analysis on an approachable, easy title, uh, the whole job is way simpler. Yeah, I think that's huge because I know that I was never introduced to any kind of literary analysis until I was in high school. And we were trying to um, dissect and books, you know, dissect and kill is what I was going to yeah. say. <laughs> These, you know, books that could have been, um, it just would have been an easier tool to learn, I think, if we had started with something simpler. And so now as I'm teaching my kids, I think if I learn on these books that we're reading to our toddlers and preschoolers, that mm -hmm. would be really effective. I think. Yeah. yeah. If you can imagine being in a college classroom where this teacher gets up and has this sort of intelligent look on his face and he, he scrunches his face up 
and says, what does it all mean? And you realize that you're supposed to answer from some secret knowledge that you've gotten yeah. by some magical <laughs> technique. And really, the answer to that question is, what's the main conflict in this story and where does it resolve itself? And mm. we we thought, we've realized that putting the question in those easy terms and seeing it crop up in easy books is a really powerful tool. Yeah, I think... You've, that makes it so much more simple. Simple. I mean, it makes it approachable because yes. I think a lot of us, a lot of parents, um, and myself included for sure, are a bit intimidated by the concept of talking about literature with our kids because we don't feel like we know the right questions to ask. Oh, yeah, of course. So, yeah, and I have the very unhelpful habit myself of asking my kids yes or no questions about right. the books they've either read to themselves or that we've read aloud together. You know, did you like it? Did and you then like they say it? yes, yeah. and that's it. It's the what discussion was the book about? killer of all time. Exactly, yes. So what kinds of questions should we be asking? That is a great question in and of itself because you're right. There's nothing that kills a discussion faster than did you like it? And the kid looks at you with kind of a dull look on his face and says no. And then yeah. your next point is, uh, very good, next book. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. So right. it really is important to ask the, uh, ask the right questions. And interestingly enough, that did you like it question is a wonderful object lesson in and of itself. Because first of all, it's a terrible question because it doesn't really lead to any discussion. But secondly, it actually focuses on the wrong person. It mm. focuses on the reader. You're asking a reader to evaluate the book. And so the whole focus of that discussion is the reader's response, the reader's reaction, the reader's takeaway from the book. When really, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, right. When really the point of literary analysis is to understand the author and to enter into a conversation with the author about the point that the author wanted to make and the subject that the author wanted to talk about. And so hmm. when we ask about our own reactions to a book, we're really asking the wrong person the wrong question. So what we've done instead is find ways to ask the author what he was trying to say by examining his work in a systematic way. Just let me give you one quick example. One of the, the um, most important common elements of all story is the plot, obviously. And that's just the list of events that, that happen in the story from beginning to end. And we, we can divide the plot up into five separate compartments. There's the exposition which is the beginning of the plot where the author introduces his world. There's the rising action where a conflict of some kind enters the story and causes events to happen one after another that result from the conflict and result from each other. And the effect of this rising action is to increase the tension in the story and in the mind of the reader as he's going along following it. And then there's a climactic moment in every plot where something happens, a decision is made or an event takes place that has the eventual effect of resolving the conflict. Every story, since every story has a conflict, every story's plot also has a climactic moment. After that climactic moment, every story has a denouement or an unraveling or a falling action where the tension that was building in the beginning of the story drains away. And then finally, there's a conclusion where the author stops writing and usually gives the reader one more thing to think about so that he doesn't forget the point that the author was trying to make. If you can ask your students, which of the details of this story belong in each of those five compartments, each of those five parts of the plot, it's amazing how the author's point starts to become clear. When you ask the students, okay, which details are the most important ones to put in the exposition? Then the reader, regardless of how young he is, is already starting to think, 
what's the author trying to tell me by setting up the story this way? Oh, right. Mm -hmm. But when you get onto that climactic moment, that's when the, the power of asking the author rather than asking yourself really becomes clear. Because every story's climactic moment is the resolution of a particular conflict in the story. And so you ask the student, what's the highest point of tension in this story? Where, do you, where are you going, oh my goodness, what will happen next? Something's got to give. You identify that point in the story and then ask the student, what conflict is being resolved there? Why is that the turning point of the story? What major question is being answered? And when you locate that major question that's being answered there, the major conflict that's being resolved there, you've got a real clue as to what the author really wanted to talk about. Very good. And so then when we ask our children, what was this book about, then we'll have a much better idea than just sort of a, I mean, I feel like I don't know how to answer that question about lots of the books that I read. Yeah. I don't really know what that was about. I mean, I can tell you a little summary of what happened, but yeah. Well, that, that's uh, my next question for you then, I guess, is, um, is this something that you practice yourself as you're reading books, you know, just on your own? Um, do you now naturally kind of pick out these different elements or? Oh, well, obviously, Missy and I do, because we yeah. you know, basically do this all day long every day. But you'd be surprised how quickly the students develop the habit as well. Uh, okay. W sometimes parents come to us and say, well, let me just start from the beginning. One of the things we often tell parents is you can't really have a discussion like this with your students unless you've read the book, too. Mm, and that's okay. often kind of discouraging because, you know, some parents have six or eight kids in the house and they've got six or eight different grade levels and there's just no way to read all those books. <laughs> And right, so we which all, makes it a particularly good method for when you're reading aloud because you're sharing the book together. Exactly, yeah. and so what we often tell them is you don't have to read every book with your students the, this way. In fact, sometimes you won't have time to read the books that you assign to your students at all. But if you'll have a good discussion with them once in a while, it will affect the way they read on their own. Hmm. Because I think what we're talking about here is this is the way literature is actually put together. And once you recognize that, you will literally see it wherever you go. And so I have my kids sometimes say, you know, I just finished this book and I thought that the climax was kind of weird because it resolved the wrong conflict. And they, they'll talk with me in the technical language that we have been using all, their, all of their lives. Oh, very and cool. They really are just, it's kind of become second nature. And I think that happens pretty fast. So how often do you think we should be having these kinds of conversations? How many books is it? I mean, it's probably hard to pin that down to a number because every family is different, but... Yeah, I think every family is different. And, and I think um, what I usually say in response to that question is start with one. Learn yes. how to do this method and ask some good questions and do it once and see whether everybody's not excited about doing it again before too long. That's so good because I think a lot of times with things like this, I know that I will go, oh, well, we are. We're going to start to have literary discussions, you know, and then right. I think to, I build it up to this big thing and I think I have to do six different books this year and as a literary discussion and I'm so overwhelmed to start. But if I just yeah. thought we're just going to do it this one time with this one picture book to start and just see where we go. Exactly with that. right. And I since you mentioned picture books, I would actually also recommend starting with a picture book, regardless of the age of your students. When we okay. teach this method, we start with literally A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban, I think I mentioned already, and I you know, teach that to, to rooms full of grown-ups all the time. And the age disparity between the intended reading level of the book and the intended reading level of the audience is usually pretty vast, but the truth is it's a great book. And if what you're there for is to learn the techniques of good reading, it's a fabulous lesson. And so I really would recommend a good, well-written picture book to start with and see if the class doesn't say, hey, wow, that was kind of fun. Let's do another one. And you have 
um, fabulous lists on the Center for Lit website, which I will link in the show notes to this podcast so everybody can find it. Uh, and you have shown, or I'm not show notes, you have picture books and then books for each grade level going on up, right, that are Absolutely. particularly good for this? Yeah, right. exactly right. And, and um, you know, the truth is, Every book is good for this because this is nothing. This is no original method. This is you know a, a window into how stories are put together, and mm-hmm. so you once you understand that you can turn and apply it to literally any book in the world. But for those looking for a specific list, we have all kinds of suggestions on our website of books that Missy and I have used and had good discussions with. Uh, also, movies and and other narratives of of any type are easily laid open by asking the kinds of questions that we recommend. Oh, right. Very good. I didn't think of that. Okay. In fact, sometimes we have great discussions reading a book and then going to watch a movie version of the book and having a literary discussion of both of them. And you'd be amazed how when you learn to ask not yourself what you thought of the work, but ask the author or the movie director, as the case may be, what he was trying to say. It's amazing how movie directors sometimes come along and try and say very different things than the original author was after. Well, what I like about that, too, what I like about the whole idea of asking the author and not asking yourself is that it's just less of a self-centered way of approaching big ideas and life in general. Absolutely. You know, I'm encountering this big world, not what do I think about uh, Hamlet or what do I think about Fran- the bargain for Francis? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the presuppositions that you should go into education with is that I don't already know. I mean, isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, the reason we're giving our kids an education, the reason we want one for ourselves is because we don't know yet. And so the proper thing to do is ask rather than tell. And that makes it a little less intimidating, too, if you come across a book that has ideas or underlying themes that kind of are a little bit maybe make us as Christian parents, maybe make us a little uncomfortable because we think, well, we're asking the author what they're trying to say and helping our children see the message that they're saying, which will help them then as they encounter different books and movies and messages in their life, be able to get down to that person's um, intention. Yes. Right? Oh, exactly right. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and it's a, it's a reading well is a mode of listening. And, you know, when we're talking to Christian parents, I'm always reminded of that message in, in the epistle of James, which says, let every man be quick to hear and slow to speak. And, I think it's a really good reminder when we read that our job, mm-hmm. first of all, is to listen and, and get ourselves out of the way a little bit. Just pay attention to what the author is trying to say. There'll be plenty of time later for disagreeing with him or whatever. But <laughs> right. until, as Lewis once, C.S. Lewis once put it, until we've surrendered first, we can't possibly know whether to disagree or agree. Ah, yes, I like that. Okay. Well, um, Teaching the classics is based on the Socratic method. So what exactly is the Socratic method? Because I know people are going to be asking that question. Well, that's a good question. We, we use the term very broadly and very informally. In some, in some strains of education, it's used very technically uh, to refer okay. to the, the method popularized by Socrates and his followers. <clears throat> we use it very, very broadly to refer to teaching by asking questions and getting a discussion going rather than teaching by lecturing. Okay. And so we're really convinced that the lecture is a terrible way to teach literature precisely because authors went to write in order to get a conversation started. And so participating in that conversation is the best way to learn literature and the best way to get a conversation going is to ask questions rather than deliver various dicta about what the book means. Yeah, where they kind of just tune it out. Right, um, exactly. So how do we convince our kids then that we're not looking for 
specific right answers. We just want to have a discussion. You know, I think I know with my own kids, I feel like they open up or even just open up their own um are just willing to have better conversations with me when they realize I'm not looking for a particular answer that's right or wrong. Yes. So they're you know, afraid of getting it wrong. Uh-huh. I just really want to know what they think. So when we're talking about a book, I just really want to know what they think about it or what, uh, what impacted yeah. them. Yeah. Or, um, I totally so understand. So how do we do that? Well, that's the, the first thing we have to do is as moms and dads and teachers, we have to learn that lesson ourselves. And I, if I had a nickel for every time a homeschool mom came up to me and said, can you please publish the answers to your Socratic questions? I just want the answers. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, eventually we have started publishing some answers just because of the hue and cry. But really, what, we are, what we'd really like to say is, don't worry about the answers. Ask the right questions and read carefully. The hmm. fact that there's not a right answer sitting in front of you will require that you have a discussion about it and that, that the room full of people that are all reading this book together will have to come to some sort of consensus about what the author was trying to say. And in a world where the author is sometimes dead and not available for comment, his book is actually all we have to go on. Right. And so, well, and two different families reading the same book, asking the same questions could come up with two, have two completely different discussions on it. They could. Exactly right. And, it's funny because I always get um, uh, criticized, well, sometimes criticized for, for contradicting myself because I would agree with what you say that two different discussions can come up with two different answers about what the main point of the story is. On the other hand, I, always, I also always say that the meaning of the book is what the author intended it to mean, and mm-hmm. we don't have a mm-hmm. choice, actually. The book can't mean whatever yeah. we want it to mean. It actually only means what it meant. Right, and so okay. we are right. in a in between a rock and a hard place because the author is often dead, and we can't ask him. We we're going for understanding exactly what he was trying to say, which was only one thing, or okay. actually was not two contradictory things. But on the other hand, being okay with the fact that two different discussions could come up with different conclusions, right? And that's essentially, and it could just be two different facets of maybe it two could. different parts of what he was trying to say. It could, and it could also be two different interpretations of a work of literature, which is what literary analysis is. That's the work of interpreting literature correctly, is striving after what the author was going for and realizing that since he's not around, you might get it wrong. Right, right. So do you do this, um, do you schedule this as part of your homeschooling day or is this something that you just do more or, I mean, we have, I know that we have listeners who are homeschoolers and listeners who are not. And so how would you suggest that um, families go about having these kinds of conversations, scheduling it or just, you know? Yeah. Great question. Great question. Once you, once you are kind of alive and awake to this idea that the, there's a, there's an inherent structure in a story and that a certain group of, generic questions can make the bones of that story appear in a discussion and lead to understanding what the story is all about. Uh, The question about how often to have the discussion really does answer itself. Mm, Partially because students really get interested in picking apart things they read, especially as they get up into the late grade school, junior high age. (laughs) Just going to say that. Yeah. When they're picking (laughs) apart everything and trying to figure out how everything works, they'll be, they will take to picking apart literature and movies in particular, uh, as my father used to say, like a cold hog to warm mud. It'll be a, <laughs> it'll be very natural. 
Um, I'd rather have my my uh, preteen picking apart books than picking apart the reasons we do the things the way we do. Exactly it. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Push up against the author. Here, not take, against... Have, have a book for a while. That's right. That's right. The <laughs> other... Wrestle with the author instead of with me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The other thing is that if you obviously everybody's looking for a way to schedule things in and a way to accomplish you know a book list or a or curriculum, and I can tell you what Missy and I do. We try to have the kids read and discuss six books a year when okay. they are working with us in junior high and high school. And uh, rare is the year that we get through the entire list. Um, and I, I'm always very quick to say that I, I really hesitate to say you must be doing this many books or else you're failing. Uh, right. Because really right. the quality of the discussions that you're having is far more important than the number of books you're covering. But um, but once every six weeks is kind of a logical thing for our family. We have them read in between the other books, but then once every six weeks we try and sit down and have a more formal discussion. In the meantime, however, they're always thinking clearly about everything they read because the techniques are uh, second nature to them. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer and here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? <laughs> fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. So when you're having these conversations, if you ask a question, um, you're going through the, let's see, there's five parts to the story, right? Exposition, rising action, climactic moment, denouement, and conclusion. Yeah, is that those right? are the five parts of a plot, right? Five parts of a plot, right. Okay, so if when you're going through those and you're asking them to, to find the most important parts of the story to put in each of these um, parts of the plot, mm -hmm. um, how long does that take? Is that, I mean, I know, I'm, I'm sure it changes depending on the story too, yeah, but is that something we should, you know, well, block I can, out an hour for? Well, I can do a, a plot analysis of a bargain for Francis with a room full of moms in half an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. Um, but it really does depend not only on the simplicity of the book, but on the age of the student mm -hmm. and the degree to which you really want to get all the way to the bottom. I mean, a lot of books you're going to read and you're going to talk about setting for just a minute, maybe talk about conflict for just a minute, and then you're going to move on because you don't want to really spend that much time on that book. And some books you really want to you know, kind of suck all the juice out of, so you're going to spend longer. Um, 
Missy and I do a complete Socratic discussion of a book in all of its facets in about two hours when we do one of our online classes. So and you do it all at once? We do it all at once. Yeah, we have the kids read okay. the story all together and come to the online class having already finished the book. And then we do a teaching the classic style discussion where we cover not just plot, but conflict and setting and characters and theme and some contextual issues all in about two hours. Okay, tell me a little more about that. What are those online classes? Are they live? Are they video? How are those work? We, use, we do them live, and we use screen sharing um, technology, so like GoToMeeting or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the kids are mm-hmm. online listening to our voices and watching our computer screen. And then our okay. format is kind of like what you and I are doing right now, just kind of a back-and-forth conversation. We kind of do it a little bit like a radio call-in show where all of the students are um, – in the class, and then if they click the button to raise their hand, we can call on them and any kid can participate. And so okay. we do some Socratic discussion, throw some questions out about the climactic moments and the conflicts and those sorts of things, and just have a ball talking about um, talking about literature. The, the goal of each discussion, obviously, is to understand more clearly what the author was trying to tell us and, and interact with that great idea. Right. Okay. And what ages are those for, your online classes? The online classes are, for this next fall, we're kind of expanding our offerings. We've got a class for fifth and sixth graders, and then we have a junior high class for seventh, eighth, and ninth graders. And then we have three high school classes, uh, world literature, British literature, and American literature. Okay. Wow. Very good. What age uh, do you start having these kinds of conversations with your kids? Oh, that's um, a good question. We we um we wrote our Socratic list, which is the 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 collection of generic discussion questions designed exclusively for moms who look at me and say, "Yeah, but what questions do I ask?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they are they're arranged so that there are questions for kids of all ages. They're divided up into twenty one general questions about structure, style, and context, and then each question has sub questions beneath it that examine different aspects of that question and sort of, you know, follow leads and follow trails that that, that question implies. And those sub-questions are graded according to difficulty. So one of the things we teach, ha- teach parents how to do in our seminar is choose the right questions based on the age of the student and the difficulty of the book. Um, and so using the the simplest of our Socratic questions, you can really have a discussion with somebody who's sitting on your lap and can't read by himself yet. Right, and then they just get in the habit of of being able to see the skeleton of a story exactly. no matter what. Exactly. It can start with something as simple if you're talking about setting, for example, is where does this story happen? Is it happen in mm-hmm. the country or the city? And have that be enough for today because the kid's really little. Yes, right. Okay. But the habit, the mental habit of asking questions about what you read and identifying elements from the story and categorizing them in your head can happen at a very early age. Yeah, at this point, we're split up in, in different ages at this point because the kids are trying to uh, you know, prepare for kind of a formal high school lit course. And so sometimes we pair them up, but Missy's teaching, I think she's teaching two or three different sections at least. We got two kids out of the home already and one's just about to graduate. So we're going to have three at home next year. And I think okay. they might be in at least two different sections, maybe three. Okay. But when they're okay. younger, uh, combining the grades is the easiest thing in the world. Yes, right. <laughs> well, maybe when you're just learning the method of teaching the classics, just learning the, the how to pick apart the different parts of a plot, Absolutely. Um, doing it with a picture book all together. Yep. In fact, we recommend that everybody start the year with a picture book or two with the whole class together in one room, just reminding, if you've done it before, just remembering after the long summer 
what the basics of this discussion model are and what kind of questions we're going to be asking and you know using a bargain for Francis as the as the lesson and sometimes we recommend people do as, that as many times as necessary until everybody's comfortable with the with the style of discussion and the types of questions because there's really no hurry you're not going to finish all the books in the world anyway so there's no there's no hurry right Right. Okay. Well, is there anything else um, that you think we should know about talking about books with our kids that's, you know, important for us to keep in mind as we try and do this more often? Well, it's interesting. You um, you started by heading the direction towards um, uh, the author's uh, perspective rather than our own. And I that's the kind of thing I usually come back to around at the end because I've, I think everybody sort of assumes that our own reaction to the story is the point. And so I'm mm-hmm. glad to have talked about that early in the hour. Um, that's, yeah, that's something I usually, I usually have to bring up myself. So congratulations. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yay, I win. (laughs) One of the things I do like to encourage moms and dads about is that, um, even though we don't feel like all of us necessarily that we're well prepared for this because it seems very academic, uh, the kind of things you need to know and the kind of questions you need to ask and the arcane vocabulary that you need to be a master of, um, the truth is that an open conversation with your students about the things they read, regardless of how smooth it is and regardless of how erudite and sophisticated you sound, really is the most important part of an education. And I love to to reiterate this every time I get the chance. You parents are the perfect people for this job and nobody could be better suited for it. Uh, just because God has put the two of you in the home and you're you're the one who's across the table from that kid and he is in your family by the will of God. And so I love to encourage parents with that idea that they're in exactly the right spot and so are their kids. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. And I think that's something important to keep in mind, too, for all of our listeners who are um not homeschoolers, because this is a fantastic way, I think, to connect with our kids and have these conversations and maybe just to get a little peek into um, the way they think something you can share at home doesn't have to be um, something that's just tied to your school day. It's just part of that whole family culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime we can, uh, we can support the, just the development of a family culture, even informally after, you know, on the way home from the movie, leaning back to the back seat and saying, Hey, you know, what, what'd you think about that? What was the, what was the director trying to say there? That kind of conversation is so, so productive and it really is the bedrock of a good education in life, not just a good academic education. Well, before we go, I want to know what your favorite all-time favorite title to read aloud is. Oh, my goodness. That is a great question. Uh, depending <laughs> on the age of the student, um, you really there's so many to choose from. When my kids were little and still lap sitters, Al Perkins' Hand, Hand, Fingers, Thumb was the family favorite. I don't know if you are familiar with that book at all. I am not. I've heard of it before, and of all the picture books I've ever read, I can't believe I've never. I'm going to have to get my hands on it. Al, now. Hand, hand, fingers, yep, thumb. Al Perkins, hand, hand, fingers, thumb. Um, okay. It'll probably tell you more about our family than you knew, but <laughs> it's a great one. When they get a little older, I love and will never get tired of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. We read okay. that together and laugh out loud from beginning to end. It's uh, okay. Do you save that for a certain age? You know, some books are. Well, my daughter, for example, I saved Anne of Green Gables until she was about sixth grade. Oh, yeah. I wanted her to really just cherish it, and it worked. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what about Tom Sawyer? What do you think? I would actually read Tom Sawyer as soon as they um, – uh, it's hard to say because the, his sentences are um, 
part of the fun is the way he puts his sentences together and the the fun that he has with the language. And so maybe maybe grade school, mid grade school to late grade school. I okay. wouldn't read Huckleberry Finn until late junior high, though, just because of some of the the content yeah. in it. But Tom Sawyer's, you know, I think free of objectionable or, or mature content. It's just a just a great ride. Okay, that'll be our next. We're we're starting The Hobbit today, but when okay. we're done with The Hobbit, we'll yeah. we'll do Tom Sawyer. My son Aaron is graduating from high school in a couple of weeks, and he has to give a um, a speech, you know, a valedictory address, and. There is a chapter in Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer that is about the end of the year recitations in a little one room schoolhouse. And Mark Twain just has a field day making fun of kids giving valedictory addresses. And uh, we read it this morning and just just busted a gut laughing. And I think he's going to incorporate some of Twain's paragraphs into his speech and poke fun at himself. So it's oh, a great that's one. Be fun. Yeah. Yeah. OK. I'm looking if they're in that. high school, you can't do better, I think, for a read aloud than Charles Dickens. Great Expectations mm. or David Copperfield or. That's another guy who really has fun with the sounds of of his own language and is just a master at uh, at making it musical. Okay, I'm gonna have to get. I, I Charles Dickens has been on my own list of what I need to read to sort of recover my own education. So oh, yeah, that that that'll jump up to the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So where can our listeners find you online? We are at centerforlit.com. C e n t e r f o r l i t dot com. And it's a pretty easy website to navigate if you're interested in learning our method. There's a curriculum materials section that's easy to click to. If you're interested in online classes, there's an online academy link. And my email and phone number is all over the place. So if you have any questions, you can get in touch with me anytime. Very good. And I noticed that a couple of your or several of your convention talks are available as free downloads on your site right now, which I think our listeners would enjoy. Um, so I'll include a link to that page. Are that was going to continue to be free, or is that just for a limited time? No, those are going to be free in perpetuity, and I'll actually be updating that page uh, when this particular convention season is over. We've added a couple of new talks that I think are going really well, so I'll add those to the website uh, early this summer. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I think you've shared a ton of useful information, so I appreciate all your time. It's my pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is the part of the podcast where we'll hear from kids in their own words about the books that have been read aloud to them. Hello, my name is Allison Rosemary. I am 10 years old. My favorite read aloud is The Search for Delicious. It starts when the Prime Minister sets out to write a dictionary. The king does not agree with his definition for delicious, so he sends his apprentice to take votes around the kingdom. It's quite an adventure. My name is Drew. I am 8 years old. My favorite story is by the Great Horn Spoon. It is set during the California Gold Rush, favorite spot was the fighting scene. Go find it. Hi, my name is Audrey. I'm 12 years old. I live in Washington State. And one of my favorite books ever read aloud to me is Half Magic. I liked this book because four children find a lucky coin that takes them on many adventures. And sometimes they even change history. If your child would like to be featured in Let the Kids Speak, head to readaloudrevival.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click the button to record a message for me. 
I would love to hear from kids of any age about their favorite books or their favorite read aloud experiences. And who knows, maybe your child will be featured on an upcoming episode. Just as I promised at the beginning of the episode, you have the chance to win a copy of Teaching the Classics by Adam and Missy Andrews. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or leave a rating or a review there. Then head to the show notes for today's episode and tell me you did. You can find the show notes with links to everything we talked about today and the Rafflecopter tool to enter the giveaway at readaloudrevival.com. Just look for episode two. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you again soon for another episode of the Read Aloud Revival. Until then, go build your family culture around books.